Hi, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Learning Journeys podcast from Lacuna Learning. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and subscribing. It's always a bit of a surprise to me to see how many people tune in, and we just hope you're keeping really well just now. So thanks very much for listening in. I can't quite believe the introduction I'm about to give, and I reckon this is probably going to be one of those moments in my life where the words are going to hopefully come out, which is the general idea of the podcast, but I won't quite believe that I actually said them. In today's episode, we are delighted, honoured and privileged to be joined by five-time Olympian, four-time world champion and three-time Olympic silver medalist, Frances Houghton, MBE. Frances was the first British woman to be selected for five Olympic Games in rowing and only the fifth woman in any sport to achieve this mark for Team GB. Over her incredible 21-year career on the British rowing team, in addition to her Olympic and world championship success, she also held two world records all in different teams and under four different coaches. She retired on the Olympic podium in Rio in 2016, having made history as part of the first British women's eight ever to win an Olympic medal. Now a published author and former professional cook, not chef, she corrected me on that when we we met before, Frances is still working and rowing as a mentor to athletes, as well as great work for UK Sport and the EIS on panels for strategy, culture, health checks and so on. She's an advocate for mental health support and sits on the UK Sport Mental Health Steering Group as athlete representative. After a life-changing experience training as a cook in Ireland and a few years working in professional kitchens, she stepped away from that space and started writing. She has recently self-published her book, Learnings from Five Olympic Games, which has been described as like stumbling across an Olympian's notebook and is as much a handbook of lessons from performance as is the story of her incredible journey. I have a copy of the book. I thoroughly recommend it. And we'll hopefully chat about it a bit later on. And very often on the pod, I know the guests quite well. We have some kind of pre-existing relationship, which is absolutely not the case here. Simply somebody I admired from a distance for many, many, many years. We'll get into it later on, hopefully, but I have this really vivid memory of her impossibly long arms wrapped around her teammates in Beijing after missing out on gold in the last 100 metres and just that comfort and support that she was trying to offer at that time. And then the contrast to Rio eight years later. I'm, yeah, just so excited to have her along to share a journey. And so thank you so much for your time, Francis. Oh, thank you, Doug. What an amazing introduction. Um, some of that I sort of struggle to relate to anymore, but, um, I guess that was my former self. Um, yeah. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Standard warm up question though for everyone. If you could go on an adventure anywhere in the world, COVID restrictions are gone. Um, where would you go? Who would you go with and what would you do? Right. So, yeah, I've given this a fair bit of thought. And you know what? I've come back to going back to my mum's, which is in Oxfordshire. It's not very far away, but it's where I spent the first lockdown this time last year. And she had a wonderful garden and it was a real, it was a special time to be able to spend unadulterated permission to spend lots of time with someone and enjoy a garden and do things with her and yeah I could go anywhere in the world you know with these COVID restrictions gone but actually it's time spent with someone um, and to appreciate it and to feel like the world has just pressed pause for for a moment I I would go back there. What an answer I mean I didn't know what you were going to say I was you live in Cornwall now and I thought you might say something close to home you might go back to somewhere you went to with rowing but what an amazing answer. People have been all over the world with that question, but you're like, I would just see my mum and spend time with her. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. 
Now, one of the challenges of this podcast, as we were laughing about before, is you were a successful athlete for 21 years. And so for us to do the 21 years justice, is we would just need to be here forever, which would be great, but probably not for our listeners' interest. So we're going to dive in and out of some stuff. I would love it so much if you could tell us a bit, maybe about your early sport experiences and, and that journey into the, into the GB program, if you could just take us back to that time and, and how that journey played out. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, I'm glad we're not going to go blow, blow by blow through, through every year. That would be a <laughs> bit much for me, let alone anyone else. But I think the first thing to say is, and, and genuinely, I, I was not a sporty kid. You know, I, when I did the long jump, I, I often did not make the sand section, still landed on the bit of tarmac. Uh, you know, in swimming, I, you know, it's barely much more than floating. Um, but I did have a really sporty elder sister. Um, and every time I turned up to PE, um, my teachers would get really excited and say, Oh, you're going to be even better than her. You know, this is brilliant. And then they'd see me not jump, not even try to jump and, you know, really not move very fast in any direction. And that, that was the reason I tried rowing. I got fed up with being compared to my elder sister and being a perpetual disappointment. Um, and thought, I'm just going to try the only sport she hasn't tried. And I was really fortunate. There was rowing at my school. There was a river at the bottom of the, the playing fields. And, you know, it was in Oxford. So I had an awareness of rowing as a sport already. And I loved it from the beginning. It was the, I am an introvert. It was a place where I felt I could be peaceful. But it was also a place where I realized there are other people doing the same thing and love it as much as I do. And we have this to talk about. So sport really at this point became a vehicle for so much more than just, you know, exercise or sport as we sometimes see it. And, you know, I just became really hooked on being out on the water and moving a boat. And that's um, what I took to, you know, through my teenage years, I was just desperate to continue and continue. And I thought, well, seeing as I've never been sporty in my life, I will just carry on until other people <laughs> overtake me because of course everyone will overtake me. You know, I started very young as a woman and I just thought, well, you know, when other people give it a go, they will be much better than me. But it just took them a bit longer than I, than I figured. And um, I think when I was 16, I watched the Atlanta Olympics on the TV and I just thought I really, <laughs> really want to see if I can do that. You know, the the celebration of sport, the being amongst the best in the world. It was actually after the Atlanta Olympic Games when a former pupil of my school came back um, from competing at those games and he told us all about it, what an incredible experience it had been. And I remember sitting, just just watching him, sort of the words falling out of his mouth and, and the images in my brain becoming kind of bigger and bigger. And I took the menu card on the table that I was on because it was a it was a dinner and I found a pen and I wrote on the back of it, I will do everything I can to get to Sydney 2000. So that was, that. I guess that was the beginning of my real f- clean focus on this is what I want to try and make happen. I don't know if I will, but this is where I want to concentrate. And, you know, I really believe it'll be worth it. It was as good as I was hoping for that intro. I love that, not sporty kids. And that it just took them a bit longer than I expected to get better than me. I just think that's, <laughs> that's hilarious given where it went. Okay. Atlanta. I remember those games. We didn't win a lot of medals. There was, however, our only goal was in rowing. There was another medal in rowing as well before. Mm. Sydney, you described that to me when we chatted before as the athletes games. What was Sydney like? Sydney was spectacular. 
I, so when I remember, I think of, you know, when you're a little kid and you get to go to those play areas and there's like a swimming pool full of colorful balls and you, and, and there are like inflatable slides and there's everything you could ever dream of and the, the sweet shop's free. It was like that as an adult. Um, it was just a, a spectacle of, and it's the wrong kind of way to describe it, but it was, it was, a, it was a spectacle as well as this incredible warm feeling. I felt so welcome. Um, it was the only games actually where we stayed in the village um, instead of in Athens, Beijing, London, and Rio. We stayed in a hotel and, and only moved into the village afterwards. But I could see the Olympic flame from my bedroom window. Uh, we went to the opening ceremony. I saw Kathy Freeman light the flame. Um, I saw her run her 400 meter final. And, you know, to be in a stadium of thousands of people, ex- absolutely expectant, holding their breath and for her to come in and this full lycra suit and to pull the hood up over her, over her head and kneel down and, and deliver the performance that she was expected to deliver. And the light bulbs just went, it was, it was silence, but the light bulbs of camera flashes just going off around this 400 meter stadium. Um, and then for her to cross the line and the whole stadium erupted. That for me is the standout memory from, from all my Olympic games as well as obviously seeing Steve Redgrave win his fifth Olympic gold medal. Um, and when I say that that lake in out in Penrith, just outside Sydney, was trembling that morning, honestly, it felt there was so much anticipation um, in the Olympic world, not just the rowing world, of what might happen that day. Um, and to see that that performance and the other guys in the crew as well uh, was was incredible. I got slightly chilled there talking about that. I, I actually, years and years later, I went to Melbourne and I've, I've seen Kathy's suit. It's like in a museum. It's up so you can see it for all to be there. And it's like, wow, you can sort of oh, feel wow, that I'd bit of history. I'd love to see that. I'd love yeah. to see that. Yeah. So I re- you remember the moment as well. And it was yeah, quite something. Now, mm. you've talked about when you're in Sydney that you paint it not quite as well as it actually happened, but which is that you said you came last in the Olympics, but you decided there that you were going to set pretty big goal for yourself at those games where did that come from right so in Sydney although I did come I think it was last or second last I've sort of wiped it from my brain it just it wasn't great basically (laughs) I did know going into it that I was unlikely to reach the heights of the Olympic podium but what I did do is when I stepped onto that plane I made a you know a promise to myself that I had worked so hard to try and become an Olympian that I would fill myself with positive thoughts and appreciation of what I would experience in Sydney from the moment I stepped on the plane. So I'm really glad that I did that because even though the performance wasn't great, I had the presence of mind, even though I was still quite young, to say appreciate it, which which I'm glad I did. And of course, that was where the women in my sport won their first ever Olympic medal. And there were these other Olympic medals in the in the men's team as well. And I knew that I had trained alongside um, these other athletes and I was, you know, I, I believed I was as good as them. And it made me think, you know, although initially when I went to Sydney, I thought I only ever want to become an Olympian once and then I'm going to go and get a proper job. By the time I came back, I was thinking, how many more times could I possibly do that? Because that was an incredible experience and I'd like to have it again and again and again. So it was actually when I was 
back in the UK, I went back to university. I was at King's College London um, studying Hispanic studies and Latin. I went straight back to um, lectures. And it was September, October 2000. I was coming back from lectures. I was sat on my scooter on the embankment and I can still absolutely see it now. I had um, the Houses of Parliament on my left and it was a really drizzly day and the traffic lights were red and I was sat there and I was just remembering what an incredible experience it had been in Sydney. And I looked at my hand, it had like my scooter gloves on, big fat black gloves, and I lifted the visor of my helmet and wiped away the drizzle. I was just sort of tapping my foot, thinking about all the all the things we'd done in Sydney. And I counted out on my fingers how many Olympic Games I could possibly fit in before I'd be too old. And conveniently, there are five fingers on our hands. <laughs> and it turned out that I could possibly fit in five games before I reckoned I'd be too old. And um, no one, no woman at that point had been to five games in rowing. Uh, and so that's when I made what was then my second bow to myself um, to say, right, I want to be the first woman to go to five Olympic Games in rowing and I want to win Olympic gold. I love how clearly you remember that that moment in the rain. Mm. Just going, actually, do you know what? This is a crystallising moment. Something came together for you there. So you've returned to the UK as an Olympian. You're Olympian for life, right? No one ever takes that away from you. And you decide, yeah, I'm going to go off and do this four more times and I, and I want to win gold. What was the journey like from there through, through to Athens in 2004? Well, I think those first early years, and, and often I see this in, in younger athletes, you know, you can't help but get better because you're young, you're doing more training, you inevitably just, you're improving. I felt like I had a bit of a sort of point to prove. So I was you know, really head down. I was, I was trying to balance my studies and my rowing. And at the time, I really found it hard. I just felt like I was getting doing everything not as well as I could. So my training was being compromised by my work and my studies were compromised by how tired I was from the training. And I was constantly wishing that I could be a full-time athlete. But now when I look back on it, I realize actually that was when I was the best athlete in my whole career because I am a thinker and it meant that I had to compartmentalise the time that I spent on thinking about rowing and the time that I spent thinking about my studies. And actually, it was a lot cleaner, it was a lot more efficient. And it's definitely when I performed at my best. You know, I, if I had a trial coming up or, you know, an important race, I would just think 15 minutes before, right, what do I need to do? And just have a real clear understanding, right, I need to do this, this and this, rather than mulling it over for days and days and days and and, and massively overthinking what is actually really quite simple, which is delivering what we already have inside of us um, to the best that we can on that day. Um, so it was, I found it hard balancing all the way up to Athens, but they were they were really good performance years for myself. And I ended up in a crew of incredible, I mean, every year I was so, so lucky to row with incredible teammates. Um, but the Athens crew really was special. Uh, three of us that were the same age and one, Alison Mowbray is a bit older, but probably more fun than the rest of us who were <laughs> really head down concentrating, trying to, trying to deliver like young people sometimes can be. But it was brilliant fun and um, some of the best racing I ever did. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, going into Athens as opposed to Sydney, you were a pretty well-established crew with some like legit credentials going into those games. What was it like going in there knowing that you had a really realistic shot of of um, picking up some medals at the games? 
Right. So yeah, it's true. So leading up into Athens, we, we were only as a crew for probably five months, but we'd had a good World Cup season. It seems like a really, like we were, as you say, an established crew now, but I think we just hit the goal, the ra- ground running in that, in our first race. And in the second, second or third race, I can't remember which one it was, but we, I think we, we beat the Germans and it was the first time a British crew had ever beaten, um, the Germans. So, at that point, we knew that we were in a really good position and there was a real um, balance in our crew between me being the one saying, we can always get better, let's still get better, let's keep moving forward. Whereas other personalities in the crew wanting to make sure we never forgot how good we already were and to make sure we didn't forget that. We're just trying to put stuff on top. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel every every time to see how good it can be. So it was, it was nerve wracking, but it was exciting. And I think one of the things that we did in this crew was we were very conscious that we were four introverts. And so we, we had to make sure that we, we, you know, we, we had a sort of, we knew that we had blind spots and to make sure that we didn't overthink stuff. But what we did do was, and Rebecca Romero, actually, who sat at stroke and went on four years later to win individual gold in cycling. And it was an absolute privilege to row with her. Um, but something she did very, very well was in training, we would improve each individual part of a race. And then when we came to race, it was like we'd stitch together all the best bits that we'd ever done in training. And I remember in our races, just sitting there thinking, wow, this is, this is great. This, this is just the best rowing we've ever done. Um, and I've, I think that's really the only time I ever felt that. But she, yeah, she was an incredible athlete and I felt very fortunate to have been able to row with her and row with people who, you know, we gave each other space to be who we wanted to be. I've got about a hundred questions from what you just said there, but I'll need to just watch my time and just ask them carefully. I mean, lots of things going on there. Let's pick on the introvert thing first as a very openly introverted person. Later in your book, you talk about this, that you did some personality profiling as, as a squad years later, and you describe it as you got that profile back and thought, oh, it must be amazing to work with someone like me who's so focused on getting all the details right and so driven. And it was only when you began to reconsider that that you considered the flip side of that. I wonder if you could just chat about that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I got my the information back on my profile, which was incredibly accurate, and it was very powerful to be able to read it. I found it very, very useful. And I did also think, well, you know, that's great. I'm really driven. I'm, you know, I'll do anything for the team. I'm a hard worker, the last one to leave the gym, all of that. But then, of course, um, with some expert facilitation, um, the, the psychologist encouraged us to talk about how we felt, you know, around other personalities. And of course, for me, being around extroverts, I find that quite crowding. It's, you know, it's a lot of energy. And then they started to talk about what it's like to be around people like me. <laughs> and that was when I realized, oh, okay, so it can be really overbearing. It can feel like you never reach high enough standards. It can feel suffocating and just too intense. And I thought this, well, I realized this is the impact I'm having on others where I thought I was instilling in others, you know, that I believed in them and that we can do this. There's so much we can do. Of course we can do this. Like let's do it together. That didn't feel like that on the receiving end. That feels uncomfortable um, and not like those people didn't feel like they could express themselves fully and freely. So that was a real realisation point for me. 
It was quite funny as well, because the first time we did this um, was in 2004. And the psychologist laid out a cross in the middle of the room, and he's the extroverts on one end of the room, introverts on the other. And um, myself and Rebecca Romero, we sort of scrambled for the far side of the room. And then she opened the door, and one of us tried to get out the door to get even further away. So <laughs> that's how um, much sort of peace and quiet some of us love to have. Um, but it's, it's so good to know the impact that you have on others. I'm laughing. People that know me quite well would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds like somebody else we know. It's even worse when your children start doing the same thing. Anyway, the other thing I want to ask you about, and you kind of dovetailed into it really nicely there, that crew came together just five months out from the games. How did you come together so quickly? You've chatted a bit about different personalities or similar personalities and that kind of thing. How did you go about like bringing together a team that's got to perform at such a high level so quickly? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think every team has a different answer. <laughs> and in a, in a way, there isn't an answer and there isn't a key and there isn't a method. Sometimes it works, sometimes it just clicks and sometimes it should work and never does. And when I talk about teamwork, I, I, I'm always really keen to encourage people to understand that, you know, don't give yourselves a, a hard time if you think it should come together. Because, you know, I, I was on the team for 21 years, every time, every year, every day with amazing, incredible people with pretty much the same goal. Yes, for different reasons. But I was in a handful of crews that, that really worked and gelled. So, you know, for every, there are many, many teams that just, it's just intangible that don't come together. But in answer to your question, um, in Athens, myself, Debbie Flood and Rebecca Romero, we had come up through the junior system together. And so we knew each other really well. And I had a great friendship with Alison Mowbray, who the first time that I, even the first day that I came onto the squad to try and make the team in Sydney, she welcomed me and she actually said, you know, I know that you might take one of our seats, but, you know, you will make us stronger as well. And that was incredibly powerful. And she looked out for me and she um, sort of showed me the ropes. And we've remained really close friends ever since. And I think it, it's not about being friends, but if you know each other well enough that you feel safe to be honest with each other, because you know you can be honest and the the other people will respect that. And of course, often when something is said, I definitely respond defensively to things. But to know that I'm going to come back again the next day and say, no, but I know, you're, you know, the reason why you're saying this and, you know, I'm, I'm in this with you and I respect you. I think that's where, you know, we, we had bonds already in that particular crew in Athens. Whereas by contrast, the crew in Rio and I know we'll come on to this, but just in answer to the personality questions, we, we were very, very different people. Um, we had a massive range of experiences. I had been to four games already. There was someone who'd never been on a senior team before. And we were a whole mix of different personalities, but we had seen through the selection process how much we want, each of us wanted it and how much we were prepared to lay ourselves bare for what we wanted to be a part of. And I think seeing your teammates put themselves on the line for themselves and for each other, you really get to know them and you really respect that. And I think that enabled us to have that level of relationship again, where we could be honest, we could trust each other under pressure. And that's where we could really work together. 
Thanks. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that incredible sassy eights. We'll get to them later on in the story. You set this goal of winning an Olympic gold medal and on your first time at, well, second time at the Games, first time as a realistic medal prospect, you come away with silver. What was that experience like? It was amazing to win an Olympic medal. I think we all felt disappointed because we had, we felt we had the capability to win. The people who did win, the Germans, they had strengthened their crew since we beat them for six weeks before, which was a compliment. It was flattering that they they thought that they needed to put their best rower. They're sort of equivalent of um, Matthew Pinson. They transferred into into their into their crew against us, but you know it was a first medal for all of us, and no one's going to waste that moment, right? You know, it was it was great fun, and we, you know, we really we're proud of ourselves. It, it was mixed emotions. But I did stand there on the podium and I looked across and I thought, I, I really believe that I could stand in the middle of this podium. Um, so that's where my concentration is, um, for, for next time. Of course, there was a next time. It wasn't that far away in your case because you kept going to games. Could you give us a bit of an insight? I guess that journey from, okay, you've kind of come in, you've done the first games, you've then progressed through, you've committed, you want to really go after this. You come with a silver medal, an incredible achievement for most, even normal people, but you didn't stop there. You kept going. What was the journey like going into Beijing? Yeah. So from Athens until Beijing, it was all about winning. You know, from the first day we came together in the autumn of 2004, the mission was to win gold in the women's quad. We had this basis of the silver in Athens. The personnel wouldn't necessarily stay the same, but we'd identified that as you know, that should be our mission. And although we've already spoken about a bit of reflection about self-awareness, I don't think I'd really understood that fully at that stage. I was very much, as I say, focused on winning. I I felt that it was, I really wanted to be a driver. And the way that I look back at it now, I can see that it, maybe I was, you know, it, it, I think possibly we could describe it as being a bit of a dictator. Look, this is how we've done it before. This is what works. This is what we can do. And really trying to emulate what we've done before. And the competition for the seats was really, really tough. And although, you know, it, it was very successful. We won world gold in 2005, 2006 and 2007. And really, really great performances. But by the time we arrived in Beijing, we'd had a very, very tough selection process for the final seats in Beijing. And I, we just didn't quite have the headspace, I think, that would have, would have been advantageous at that point. And I think it's also easy to forget. Yes, we, you know, we were really, really strong position. We, we were med- gold medalists, reigning world champions. But the Chinese were a very, very strong crew. They'd beaten us in the final race before Beijing. And the Germans had never lost in the history of the event. So it's, it's easy to think that our crew is the strongest crew, but you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a race on the day. And as you say, we lost it just in the last sort of hundred meters, but I'm still incredibly proud of what we put together. So it's, um, yeah, I guess tinged again with it's always wonderful to win an Olympic medal, but it wasn't the one we were focused on winning. Yeah, thanks. And do you know, I'm hearing you talk there. I remember how sad I was watching that. I watched that final thinking, Oh, yeah, they're, they're going to win this. They're bloody brilliant. And, um, and it just, you, 
I remember watching the last 200 meters going, no, this, this, then, oh my goodness, it's, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. How, how do you go from there? Like, how do you, what, what was that like for the four of you? Because obviously, I guess in Athens, you were all over disappointed. It was obviously your first Olympic medal and you were pretty pleased with that. It just, it felt just so different watching it that though you had this Olympic silver medal and amazing achievement, almost felt like you'd lost. That's the feeling I got. What was that like? Right. Yeah. So it, it did feel like we had lost. It felt like a huge wave of grief, the overwhelming feeling when we crossed the line. And I remember because I, you know, I, Catherine was sitting in front of me and she just held her head in her, head in her hands and just let out this sort of groan of frustration that said to me, I will never, ever be able to turn the clock back seven minutes. And that's all I need. Give me those seven minutes again and I will do it differently or we will do it differently. And But I can't turn back time. And that absolute pure frustration. Um, I think the other thing to say is it's it's not like anything. There's, There's no comparison to that distilling your entire life's work um, into this really small bubble and to try and execute something with millions of people watching and to not deliver. And it's sort of big picture, little picture, isn't it? Because you've got millions of people that you don't even know, as well as really close friends and family who have flown across the world to be with you in this moment and you haven't delivered. And I remember standing on the podium and seeing my dad in the crowd and just the look in his eyes just said, it's okay. But that was almost worse because you could tell how much he was hurting, you know, how sad he was. And I can't imagine what that would be like as a parent because they were never, ever pushy. They'd they never said I needed to win or could win or it was never about winning. They enjoyed following me around the world. But you know, it was as much to make friends with other parents and, and watch sport as anything else. So to see his pain was was horrible. But I think the worst thing for certainly myself, Debbie and Catherine, was to know that for Annie, she wasn't feeling like we felt on the podiums in Athens. Because when we won our first Olympic silver medals, we, you know, we were basically pretty happy. But for Annie, this was her Olympic medal, her first Olympic medal, and she should be feeling on top of the world. And she wasn't. She was feeling like us, absolutely distraught. And we couldn't take that feeling of pain away. We couldn't reinsert, you know, a different narrative and say, well, never mind, but you still won this one. So that that was really, really hard to deal with. And I wish it could have been different. But I learned a lot from it. And you know, I value like every experience I've had and the relationship I have with those guys is really close as well. And I remember sitting on the on the landing stage after we'd come back in and taking the riggers off the boat. Uh, and I think I don't Annie pushed Debbie in the water and we all, you know, ended up in a in a pile of sort of t- tears of laughter, frustration, tiredness, all of it. And to know that you can still on a day like that laugh with people that know what it's taken and what you've been through and that the three of you or four of you will only know what that feels like but you share it that's incredibly special as well thank you i was very nervous about asking you that question and i just i feel that just that like deep sense of loss and i'd never thought about it from annie's point of view for her 
cheered her for a Olympic medal. And the silver medal is an incredible achievement because the three of you were so sad and so devastated that, like, well, we're kind of not sharing it in that joy because and I'm sure at some point it probably did feel joyful. But um, I love that you all then pushed each other in the water and had a bit of a laugh at some point during that process. How long was it before you look back on that with pride as opposed to with, with regret? Right. Um, so I'm not sure if I yet, I don't know, do I? I think the first thing to say is I came back to the UK and although I still knew I had this vow and this desire to try and make five games, I knew I needed time out and I couldn't guarantee that I would come back to the sport. I just knew that I needed time to repair mentally. And I said to myself, right, I'm not even going to finish the sentence in my mind. Am I going to come back? Do I want to come back? And I'll give myself as long as I need. All I remember is being in a dark room for a long time and, and actually really struggling to speak for many days. I came down to Cornwall. Actually, this is where I used to come down after Olympics and World Championships, just feel very free down here. But, you know, I actually did really struggle to form sentences. I think I was just processing so much in my mind and trying to come to sort of an equilibrium about it. That, yeah, it just took a long time. I, th I think it was about February, March time where I started to feel like I was getting some energy back. But I do also remember feeling in the, in the couple of months after Beijing, I was aware that I was exhausted. It had been a, a really, we pushed so hard and worked so hard towards that race in Beijing that if we had won, I wondered if we would have been relieved instead of elated. And I thought to myself, I never want to cross the finish line and be relieved. I want to feel, as you say, pride. I want to feel absolute joy at what I've created with my teammates. And I'm doing it wrong in some way if I win Olympic gold and my overriding feeling is relief. So that was something I wanted to make sure that I learned from. It's so interesting, that feeling of relief. You know, you read a lot about that. Kathy Freeman talks about this, that she won Olympic gold in Sydney in front of, you know, whole their country watching her. She just felt relieved. It was over, for goodness sake. Steve Redgrave talked about this a lot in his mm -hmm. last two games. He was just relieved that he got it done. And it wasn't, yeah. it was joyful later, but at the time it was just relief that we got that over the line. And I wonder if yeah. that, yeah, maybe not the experience you were, you were hoping for. Yeah, well, I think it's a huge amount to put oneself through. And I think it's very, it is very hard to explain. And we were talking about this earlier, but, you know, in any year, um, and I need to get better at maths, but um, <laughs> so you've got three, 360 days in a year. And it's that amount of training is about as equally important as holding yourself together in those last few days. And then that last 24 hours, they each become proportionately more important and harder to handle and the emotional control and understanding you need to have to be able to hold it together to deliver a performance is absolutely it's like scraping through your brain and well that's why I found it like so it's you know from the outside it may seem like you've done all the training you deliver what you're capable of but actually mentally it is about so much more than that so, yeah, and I think, as you say, you gave those two examples. And gosh, I remember Matty Pinson on the podium in Athens. I mean, he could, he, he crumbled. He was just, you know, absolutely pouring with, with tears. And I think that really showed how much you, one puts oneself through. 
Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And if you read his book, he it talks about trying to hold it together and just having nothing left. I'd like to fast forward, if that's okay. Not because it's not. I'd love to let's learn about it all, but we've been here a long time. The journey into Rio, and looking reading through your your book and getting a sense of this, um, you use the term burnout, kind of after London home games and so on, that you reckoned you were just totally burned out. Could you maybe give us a bit of a sense of of where that came from and, and kind of what followed next? Yeah. So what I look back and see now is really that my what I, as you say, call burnout was the physical manifestations of emotional stress. So I was push, push, push. I could had a big hip operation in 20, 2009, actually, after I came back and had I felt like it was my job to be the leader and to make other crews win again. And I was the experienced one and it was up to me. It was on my shoulders and I need to push everything forward and pull everyone along with me and tell everyone how it's done. So I tried really, really hard, put loads of energy into it. And, you know, it exhausted me. And it was, I'm sure, pretty unpleasant for other people to be around. And as we all know, that's not an effective way really to work with people. And so, but what I found was that I was just completely exhausted. And the first thing that happened was my back sort of went in some way and I found myself on my bedroom floor swapping a bag of frozen peas for a hot water bottle over and over again for about two weeks. Um, But what this did give me was a time to reflect and to press pause. And I realized that there was no way that I would be going yeah, if I got in a rowing boat again at that felt at that point, that would be a miracle. But I could I wouldn't make an Olympic team and no crew that I was in was going to like come together and do well if I carried on approaching it in the way that I was. So that was when I took a really hard look at myself. I really assessed what where my best performances had come from in the past. I and I and I realized that when I, when I performed at my best, I wasn't actually focused on going fast. I was focused on, right, what can we as four people create together? And what will be, will be from that. And that, that was when I seemed to bring out my, my best and freest performances. And although it felt far fetched that I could possibly make another crew and be, be up in a rowing boat again, I still believed that my body was capable. If I could stand, if I could get myself standing upright again, I believed I was capable. And so I said, right, well, I'm going to, I've got two years. I'm going to give it another go, <laughs> crawl myself back up again. But I need to redefine what I see as success because my definition at the moment of success equals gold is making me ill and injured. It's very unpleasant to be around and it simply is not working. So what I can see now is that I basically shook hands with defeat and I said, okay, well, it's okay that if I don't win, that's okay. It's not that I don't believe that I still could win, but I have to understand that it's okay if I don't. And I reconciled myself because to me that was failure, but I reconciled myself with it. I shook hands with it. I looked myself in the eye and I said, you've got to be okay with this. And I redefined success. And I said, it would be to stand on the Olympic podium with my arms around my teammates and feel joy, joy at what we've created, not relief. And in that moment, it was, it was like a hose pipe of stress. You know, hose pipes, they get sort of all kind of twisted up and the water can't get through. And when you untwist it, suddenly everything just goes through really smoothly and um, comes out really fast. And it was like I had untwisted the hose pipe 
And I kid you not, I did not get injured again from that moment through until Rio. And I felt like I was so much more in line with myself. And I knew that in order to have this moment that I wanted, how I wanted to feel on the podium, in order to feel like that, I needed to have a much, much closer eye on on how I was behaving every day. And that I needed to, if I wanted that moment on the podium to be genuine between us as people, I needed to understand all of my teammates in every day leading up to that. And I also said to myself, I don't have to be in this crew. I I, I believe that it's possible for a, another women's crew, be it a, at that point a quarter or an eight. But in 2016, I you know I moved on into the eight, and I believe it's possible for a women's eight, British women's eight, to win a medal. I don't have to be a part of it, but my satisfaction is going to come from knowing that I've contributed to it in some way, and to those people having a really positive experience at the games. And I don't think I could have done that and stepped myself away from it if I hadn't already been to four and felt like I'd exhausted every <laughs> attempt to try and make the most of my ability. But you know, it was when I was in the middle of the final in Rio and we were closing down on the Americans the, who went on to win gold that I realised that actually changing my mindset like this had taken me closer to gold than I ever thought would be possible again. So not only was it more enjoyable, not only did it make it possible for me to actually function again, but it released so much more in myself. And it meant that I almost took a helicopter ride. I stood back and I went from being this dictator to much more of a sort of energy director. And hopefully the other, and everyone in this group played their part. And it's the same in every team. Everyone plays their part. But I hope a little bit of a part that I played was instead of being overbearing, like I was before, I just wanted every single person in that crew to be able to express them, themselves fully. You know, I really believe that what is inside of each of us is enough and we express ourselves most powerfully as our most natural selves. So I really wanted us to go out there in Rio and express ourselves, what we had created. And so I, I think I think we did that and um, it was a dodgy moment in the middle there. <laughs> but um we did come through the field from last to to second, and so yeah, it, it was a it was a it was a real journey, and it was a learning journey. Changing my mindset from it being all about gold to what can we create together, and really taking a step back from those reins to see what's possible and what grows if you stop trying to hold on to everything. I want to ask you more about the Rio final in a second. I wonder if we could just circle back to something you said earlier that I'm just really interested in. So we talked about that slightly prophetic moment when you decided, right, I'm going to be the first woman to go to five Olympic Games in rowing in Great Britain, and I'm going to win Olympic gold. I'm wondering if you think, looking back now, that, that writing that slightly prophetic goal, did that in some way cause any of the issues that you then felt later on that you'd, you'd committed to this? This is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm going to be? That, do you think cause you issues? Yeah, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it did, but I'm sure it had as many upsides as well. I mean, the the one of the reasons I actually really struggled to talk about sport um, and in any way relate it to everyday life is because they really aren't the same. So in sport, in elite sport, we have this incredible opportunity to concentrate just on sport, and our whole lives revolve around around it. This goal that we have. 
there are many, many people in the team. So we've got doctors, physios, coaches, all sorts of support staff who are there to facilitate us concentrating on this one thing. So our life is really simple and really, really clean. And I think me making this really clear goal was really powerful because I was like, well, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And I'm, you know, I didn't get distracted by other things. Yes, I felt like I needed to manage my studies, but that was part of a picture. It was a jigsaw. It's a constructive jigsaw and part of a process. And yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I dug a hole for myself, but it suited my personality. And I think it worked for a while and then it, then it stopped working. And I needed to, I, I just like with anything, if you do something too much, you just get too far down one end of a scale. And I became, you know, I was just trying to become more and more focused on, on that one thing and, and lost the balancing things around me. Okay. Thank you. Rio, the, uh, it's great reading the book because as an outsider just watching it, you get this sense of some of the social media banter and chat that you girls had amongst yourselves, but reading the book, you get a real sense of the ins and outs of that. Now, if people read some of the books about Steve Redgrave and so on, he was forever labeled the old man as how he got to the end of his career because he, he did have three kids and so on. How would you have described your role within that group of people, which you described, you know, at the start of your career, four people who were very, very similar. And you said this crew of eight of you or nine of you in the Cox who were incredibly different. How did you kind of position yourself within that group? Right. Well, I was definitely positioned as the old woman. <laughs> That's for sure. I didn't want to say that. But yeah. I no, I was definitely the old woman. Um, but that was fine. I could totally wear that mantle. That was, you know, that meant that I could ask them to carry my blade for me. <laughs> um, so I didn't do that. Yeah, we were we were really different. But you know, I'd never rode in an eight before, not at that level, really. So for me, it was as much an adventure learning from them. And I've always loved, especially having been on the team for a while, or in a, you know, even if we were in an established crew and someone subbed in, I really wanted to hear what fresh eyes had to say, because I think they tell so much. And you know, it was for me. You know, I I'd admi- admired a lot of these girls, um, sort of from the being another cruise for many years, and I. I just, at this point, I wanted to make sure I was just one of eight of us, um, that I rode my seat well. Uh, you know, and I refer to it in the book, like, what can I contribute other than power and skill? Because I knew I wasn't going to get that much more powerful or that much more skillful in, I joined the, t- the sweep team, the rowing team for this crew at the very start of January in 2016. So I had eight months basically, and I could row with one or all right and it would get a bit better but I knew from all the Olympic finals that I'd been in that really it was about how we handled that last 24 hours and that would determine whether we delivered what we were capable of or not so I really concentrated and this is what I tried to distill in the book like I I knew that I had all this learning and I wanted to distill it in the most constructive way possible and I just kept I tried to keep things really really simple and I think that's something that I did throughout my career. I was often responsible for the race plans. And I and I always tried to distill all of what we had worked on into some very, very simple pictures or concepts so that when it came to racing, when it came to that moment of pressure, we all knew in a word, in an instant, exactly what we needed to do. And we would respond in the same way. So I think that's the role I tried to take on is to is to make sure that things stayed really simple. I tried to make sure that everything was about trusting our process, trusting each other, 
absolutely instilling and giving each other permission to believe in ourselves. I've, I've really felt that was often a, a little bit of a blocker in crews that I'd been in. You know, it's, it's okay to believe in ourselves. It doesn't mean that you're arrogant. It doesn't mean that you think you're going to win or anything, but absolutely give yourself permission to believe in yourself. So I had these, I had a few kind of building blocks that belief, the trust, build to a point where we could have honest conversations and enable others to like fully express themselves. And that, that, as I say, everyone in the crew plays their own role. Um, and I really, at this point, it really enjoyed what other people brought and the, the real mix of it rather than, you know, five years before that, I absolutely thought there was a carbon copy of what a champion should be and how they should behave and everyone should sort conform and put tracing paper on top of that. Um, so this was very different, but it was really enjoyable. But, you know, as I say, I, I think if it would be my second or third Olympics, I don't know if I'd been able to let go like that. But I knew that every day was a, a bonus and a privilege. So I'm so glad I got the opportunity to row with the people that I did. Yeah, no, the sense of it comes over now. And it, I got it when I was reading your, your book as well. There was a dodgy moment in that Olympic final. I watched back the race again yesterday to remind myself of that. I had forgotten that you were as far back as you were. And you talked about this idea that, you know, you, this was your fifth Olympic game. So you knew that there comes a point in every Olympic final when you get the question asked of you and you've got to find an answer to that. Mm. And that's when the kind of test of your preparation and so on comes to fruition, the, that moment. So dodgy moment, you're, the Americans have gone off unbelievably quickly and you are sixth through, I think through 500 and through a thousand, I think, right. looking back at it. How did you as a group, as a crew, cope with that dodgy moment, as you put it? Right. Yeah. So you're right. You know, sitting on the Olympic start line in Rio um, with that Christ the Redeemer statue just above me, I knew that my career would be defined in the next six and a half minutes. I'd had an up and down time in the last sort of 10 years of it. And if it went well, great. If it went badly, you know, that would that could rest on my shoulders and at least not not be a good way to to end it all. But we had a plan. And the commitment we made to each other was to execute the plan that we had made. And Zoe de Toledo, our cox, was incredible because, yes, we were down, but she I remember her so loud and clear. She said, everyone else has gone off too hard. We're doing the rowing that we said we were going to do. This is our best rowing. Keep doing it. Trust me. And we we trusted each other. And the thing that I wanted to do was do something completely different start like you know becoming really um do yeah just really physical <laughs> throw the plan out the window all of that but you know I had made a commitment and we had practiced and practiced and we knew what made ourselves go as fast as we could and you know she was right others had gone off too hard and we came back through the field but that was where our trust in each other and how much we understood each other and we understood the plan that was when that really counted because we actually only won silver over bronze by a photo finish. And I can absolutely guarantee that that tiny, tiny margin was about us and our trust in each other um, and how we handled that moment in staying clear, staying calm, saying the right things to each other in that moment and being able to do that you know, and there's someone actually listening to you when you've got no oxygen left and your head screaming and you're absolutely terrified that you're going to throw away a chance at an Olympic medal. But 
that's where the relationships really count. I love what you said there. That's where the relationships count. That's where it all comes together. It's always nice in a story, isn't it, when we have a happy ending? So it was the same colour for the third time, but it, I got this amazing sense listening to you today that those three silvers felt very different for different reasons. It just And if anyone hasn't watched it, where, where have you been? Go on YouTube, look it up, the, the final. They are going absolutely mental after that, that victory. And you talk about this in the book, that the other girls are a bit younger than you and you were quite happy to watch them jumping around like maniacs and you were just kind of enjoying that that moment. In that moment, you, this is a hard question, you might not know, have an answer for it. What would you say to yourself in Beijing? That's, that was eight years earlier, you know, and we did have a happy ending. It was the same colour. Yeah. What would you say now to yourself in Beijing on that podium? You know, I think this is the same answer to as when people say to me, you know, what would you tell your younger self? And, you know, the pressure that other people put on you, you don't have to take that on yourself. And it's okay that it is your journey. And if you feel proud that you've got an Olympic silver medal, that's okay. So, you know, I, I would say the same thing. It's for each of us, it's our own journey. And other people's pressures don't have to be our own. Great. And a second, I'm going to try and summarize this incredible conversation. But I want to ask you, um, before we get to the final bit, what's next for you? So you retired after Rio, retired on the podium, finished on a high. What's next in the story of Francis Halton? Oh, well, <laughs> the story of Francis Halton. Who knows? Well, you know, I, I've, dogs. I've, there's, yeah, two dogs arriving this weekend. Never had a dog before. And my partner's going back to work the next day. So I'm a little bit nervous about that. Um, but yeah, over the last four years, I have been putting my book together, distilling my, my learnings into something really nice and succinct and easy to read and digest. It is, you know, it's rich content, but it was really important to me to pass on the learnings from my experiences in a meaningful way, which is why I've produced something like colourful and I hope and is easy to read and understand and is a mix of really pragmatic stuff and a much more emotional, deeper personal stories through my career. So yeah, I mean I'm enjoying seeing where this can lead me. Talking with people for me, the book is the start of a conversation. And if I can enable others to have a really positive experience in sport, you know, I do think sport is at, at the elite end is, is really, really hard, but it can be incredibly rewarding as well. Um, and so that's what I'd love to see more of and to have more conversations about. Thank you. I was going to ask you, what was your wish for sport? But you've, you've kind of, you've kind of gone there already. Okay. Stuff that is sitting with me from this conversation. I'll, I'll get to listen back to it again when I do the post-production piece but uh, I love how you started I'll just carry on until other people overtake me it just took them a bit longer than I expected just still makes me tickle that you said that makes me laugh then this kind of prophetic I'm gonna do everything I can to get to Sydney and then I'm gonna go on to be the most successful Olympian that I can possibly be I love what you talked about as the years went by kind of compartmentalizing your life a bit more so you know rowing and life and studying you know you've got this lovely image in your book of the big circle with with life and rowing is like a circle within it, but not the whole circle. I just thought that um, really sat with me. So that picture, actually, I when I drew it as a sketch that I had on my kitchen table, and I'd leave it there so that. And sometimes, if I was being particularly intense about rowing and felt like I was starting to overthink it, I'd put it on my doormat as I left, so that when I came back in from training, I literally had to trip over it to get into my front okay. door to remind oh. myself, keep it in perspective. Yeah. Wow. 
yeah, so it just sat, sat with me and it's a good thing for young athletes maybe to have a think about, have a look at that real piece around self-awareness, understanding you and understanding how you interact with others when you're at your best, when you're at your worst and when's that helpful, when's that not so helpful, when do we need to dial up and dial down some of those things a little bit. Toto Beijing and the, the grief that you described there and yeah, your, your dad doing what dads do, right? It'll be okay. Yeah, a bit heartbreaking to hear that. And then you kind of this idea of coming to an equilibrium, coming to a place where you can make sense of that the burnout and the journey that went through that. And then I just, I suppose the real nugget of this, if anyone's listening at home, is this idea of redefining success. And you said, I shook hands with defeat and said, it's okay if I don't win. Um, and just this idea of being able to stand on the Olympic podium with your teammates and feel joy, which had just not been the emotion you had felt previously. And it sounds very much like you kind of got there by, by the, by the end of the, sorry, Rio. Wow. There was an awful lot in there, everyone. I hope you were listening and hope you've enjoyed it. There's just, yeah, masses and masses. I am so grateful to Francis for, for her time. Where can we follow you? Where can we um, keep an eye on what you're up to? Where can people get hold of your book? All right. So the book is available through my website, which is www.francishorton.co.uk. And that's Francis with an E and Horton, H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. So www.francishorton.co.uk. Um, I'm occasionally <laughs> prop up on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I am terrible at it and I completely forget it exists. Um, but <laughs> when I do pop up, it's uh, at Horton Francis on both of those. So yeah, that, that's where I am. I have done the book entirely myself, hence why it's only available through my website. And I know we chatted about this before, didn't we, Doug? Um, it's so, so simple to think, oh, it'll just go on Amazon. But unfortunately, that's not possible. Um, you know, I've used local people down here, local printer. Everything's been produced in Cornwall. Even my web design is in Cornwall and um, recycled paper down here. So as, you know, the book was originally, I produced it as a gift for the coaches and friends and teammates and family who had helped me get over the line that last time and so it was produced as a gift and I've kept it as it was originally meant so that is that is that is how it is and I hope people enjoy it if they do want to get hold of it from themselves. Thank you I will stick all that information in the description uh, for the podcast and it will go on social media she'll probably not engage with it but it'll go out there anyway. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real joy. And you're right. It's, it's not a normal, like a traditional autobiography type read. It's just you distilling down. There's just so much in there. So yeah, I'm really, really grateful to you for your time. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story. I hope people get lots out of it. And hopefully we've got a lot of discussion. Like you say, it's the start of a conversation, not, not the end of one. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Keep an eye out for future podcasts and hit subscribe to make sure that you don't miss out. And obviously everyone at the moment, please stay safe. 